from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Robert Stockman. Rob is a Baha'i and author of a number of books about the history of the Baha'i faith in America, including Abdul Baha in America, Baha'i Faith in America, Volumes 1 and 2, Thornton Chase, First American Baha'i, and The Baha'i Faith, A Guide for the Perplexed. Rob is also the director of the Wilmette Institute, a Baha'i online learning center. We talk about Rob's books and the Wilmette Institute in the interview. I started the interview by asking Rob where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in a little town called Granby, Connecticut, a suburb of Hartford. It was a fairly quiet suburb at that time. I was born in 1953, so I grew up mostly in the 60s. My father was an apple farmer for most of my childhood. And what was spiritual life like? Well, I was unchurched and never went to church myself. The town was almost completely white. I'm not sure I ever saw any black people in town. There were no black people in my schools where I went to school. I'd say about a third of the town was Catholic. The rest were various forms of Protestant. Well, there was no exposure to faith. There was very little diversity it was quite exotic to get spaghetti or pizza at an Italian restaurant. I don't think there were any Chinese restaurants anywhere nearby. Certainly no Mexican food. My God, I didn't eat that until I was in, in college. Uh, I introduced my mother to bagels in the 1980s. She'd never had anything like that. And she even grew up in a wealthy suburb of Hartford with her father, a vice president of an insurance company. That was the sort of landscape, you might say, spiritual landscape. And what were your interests growing up? Well, at that particular time, I was really interested in science fiction. I was mainly interested in sciences. I was studying especially geology and astronomy, and uh, eventually settled on uh, the field of planetary science, planetary geology. Got a major in geology at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and then went to Brown University, got a master's degree in planetary science and planetary geology specifically. Uh, geology of Mars, actually. Mars had always been a particular fascination of mine and still is. I follow the research being done on that particular planet fairly closely to this day. So that was my main interest. I had no particular interest in religion, though when I went to college, a friend of mine who was Catholic invited me to Mass and Father Charlie, who was this Jesuit priest, marvelous man, fairly young, was probably about 30 at the time. Really, he led folk, folk masses all the time, and you broke the bread off for the next person, and you passed the cup of wine around all while you were sitting in a circle. It was really marvelous. My best friend, was, who was Jewish, went with me too. We went to mass pretty regularly, but it would never have even occurred to me to become Catholic, you know. We weren't going because of the religion. We were going because of the 
fellowship, the spiritual atmosphere. It was really quite, quite nice that way. So the experience was more of a social experience than any kind of spiritual experience. Well, I'd say it was a spiritual experience, but not a religious experience. Does that make uh-huh. sense? And it was certainly a social experience too, but it wasn't a crucial social experience. It wasn't mm-hmm. something I would have missed badly or something if I couldn't have gone. I enjoyed it very much. Right. Of course, that's also where I first encountered a Baha'i community when I was in college. I first heard of the Baha'i faith in 1968 when I was at a state fair at the, that had a Baha'i booth, and I picked up Baha'i pamphlets. I liked them very much. I was interested, and I put the pamphlet away, thought about it, but never looked at it again. So I guess you could say it sort of intrigued me a little bit. But then there was a Baha'i community on campus at Wesleyan University, and I knew they had meetings on, I think it was Wednesday night or something. But actually, I had, a, I had astronomy lab Wednesday night, so I couldn't go. Then I mentioned it to a friend of mine who was Catholic. I was kind of curious about it. She said, no, 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 they're just a little compromised faith. They take a little of this and a little of that and combine it all together. And I thought, oh, that's not very interesting. So that discouraged me a bit. But then the beginning of my junior year of college, I had a, a Baha'i in the suite where we were, we were living. There was 10 bedrooms with a kitchen, a living room, and a dining room, and three bathrooms and all that. And uh, there was a Baha'i who was added to the group because we had two empty rooms that we weren't able to find volunteers or friends to fill. We were very insistent no one could smoke cigarettes, you know, so it was a little harder to find people. And so they put a Baha'i in there, and he and I were talking, and he told me about the faith, and I went to a fireside, which fortunately was no longer on the same night as Astronomy Lab. I asked a lot of questions, and I declared in three weeks, it's October 16th, not that far from the beginning of the semester. Rob, I guess growing up, did you have spiritual leanings? It was just not cultivated growing up, and you were just sort of a blank slate in which you could be open to other religions? Well, you know, I'm not sure I have all that much spiritual leanings even now, in a way. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, I mean, the connection for me, again, was science fiction and Star Trek, you might say. Uh, a united world with the equality of races and equality of the sexes, harmony of science and religion. These were very, very attractive ideas to me at the time I was 20. I probably had never prayed in my life. And I remember when I became a Baha'i, they said, oh, there's an obligatory prayer. Oh, my God, I have to say a prayer every day? <laughs> but, oh, I guess I can handle that. So, But you were uh, still open to it. I was open to it, sure. I mean, yeah. it was actually a very nice time of the day to, to say the prayer, because Wesleyan University is situated in a very large sort of open area above town, and at noontime you can hear every bell ringing, and you can hear, I don't know, boat whistles out on the Connecticut River and everything, so often I'd be walking between classes at 12 noon with all this going on, and a nice view sometimes, and I was, it was a very nice time to say the short obligatory prayer, actually, walking between buildings right at lunchtime. So that was quite a, a nice opportunity, I guess you could say. But I had never really prayed in my life. I was not terribly inclined towards it. I still am not terribly inclined towards it. I, uh, it's much easier to talk to God than it is to recite prayers for some reason. Sure, um, I can understand And that. so I, I can't say that I had a spiritual streak or bone in me beforehand. It was really attraction to one part of the faith one part of the teachings, which 
quite naturally led me to trust Baha'u'llah, I guess you could say. You could say I had faith in Baha'u'llah also, but personally I prefer to use the word trust than faith. Faith has sort of become a wishy-washy word in our modern world, and trust conveys perhaps a little better how I felt at the time. I trusted Baha'u'llah. I had never thought about the afterlife. I had no real thoughts whether it existed or not particularly. And then afterwards it occurred to me that I just believed in the afterlife. And Well, why did I believe in the afterlife now and I didn't before? Well, there was no scientific data either way, but I trusted Baha'u'llah. If he says it's there, it's about the best data I can get. <laughs> it, it really sort of that sense, it became quite natural to not just believe in the afterlife, but to assume its existence, to yeah. make it a part of your daily thinking about the world. And so in that sense, it's not just a belief, it's just a, an internalized postulate, you might say. So you must have really liked the principle of the agreement between science and religion. Yes, of course, that was very attractive to me because of the interest in science that I had at the time, and that interest continued right through graduate school, of course, when I went to Brown University and got a degree in planetary geology from, from them. I was quite intrigued by the idea of life on other planets and you know, in the Baha'i writings, there's even the, the references to every fixed star having its planets and every planet having its living creatures whom no one can compute. And I tend to take that to be a bit of a hyperbolic statement. I don't think Mercury has physical living beings, biological carbon-based living beings on it or anything like that. But nevertheless, it's an affirmation of the the ubiquity of life in the universe. And that's to me, a very important principle that is mentioned by Baha'u'llah. There's also even a statement somewhere in Mahmoud's diary for Europe, um, hasn't been translated into English yet, where uh, Abdu'l-Baha apparently said, in the future, space travel will assume great importance. This particular passage appeared in a feast letter that the National Spiritual Assembly wrote in July or August of 1976, and there's a bit of an interesting story behind this. I was talking to Farooz Kazemzadeh, who was a member of the National Spiritual Assembly, uh, probably in June or so, telling him I was about to go out to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and work on the Viking mission, which, of course, Viking 1 landed on Mars in late July, I think 20th of July, uh, 1976. And he mentioned this passage in Mahmoud's diary to me, and then I guess he went and dug it up and found it and proposed it to the National Assembly for the feast letter. So it appeared in that feast letter. So these are important principles of science and religion to me, and they remain important to me to this day, really. You mentioned a number of Baha'i terms and concepts that I'd like to cover <clears throat> for those who may not be familiar with. The first was you mentioned Mahmoud's diary. Could you give a little background on who Mahmoud is and who Abdu'l-Baha is? And Sure. Well, yeah, Abdu'l-Baha, of course, is the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. Baha'u'llah was the founder, and, and his, his dates are 1817 to 1892, and he wrote quite extensively in Arabic and Persian and a little bit in the mix, a mixture of the two languages. We have, I think the latest count is 18,000 works by Baha'u'llah preserved in the archives, totaling more than 5 million words of revelation. So the writings of Baha'u'llah are considered 
uh, divine revelation. And of course, one of the advantages we have is that nowadays the revelation can actually be written down as it's delivered. Baha'u'llah actually had secretaries who developed a kind of shorthand so they could capture it as it came down. And this, of course, is in sharp contrast to well, even the Koran, which went through an oral period of uh, 10 or 15 years, or the New Testament, where the words of Jesus were in an oral tradition for probably 30 to 50 years. And, of course, Jesus said what he said in Aramaic, but it didn't get written down until it was written in Greek. So it even had translation in the oral phase. So we have the writings of Baha'u'llah, which give us the bedrock of the teachings of the faith. And at this point, I think about 8% has been translated into English. He then appointed a son, his oldest son, Abu'l-Bahá, as his successor. And Abu'l-Bahá, again, wrote extensively, more than 4 million words. The number of documents, I think, was 27,000. Of course, these are mostly letters to people, page or so, in length, two pages long, maybe, in some cases. And again, they fill in the gaps. They amplify the things Baha'u'llah explained. Abu'l-Bahá, his dates are 1844, to 1921, and of course that's a time when there was the growth of the Baha'i community in the United States and Europe. Uh, the first American became a Baha'i in 1894, and Abu Baha was in charge at that point. It was right at the beginning of Abu Baha's ministry, and since Baha'u'llah had passed in 1892. So Abu Baha had been the head of the faith for two years when the faith began to grow in the West. So he had to answer lots of questions from Westerners who, of course, were not Muslims or, shall we say, Middle Eastern Jews or Middle Eastern Zoroastrians who had ideas that Baha'u'llah interacted with and questions that he answered. Now, Abu'l-Baha had to answer the questions of Marxists and European secularists and Christians and even Buddhists and such. So Abu'l-Baha's writings flesh out the teachings of the faith in that context, and then when he came to the West in 1912, he came to the United States, his secretary was Mahmoud, who kept a diary. So we have an incredible amount of information in Mahmoud's diary for Europe, United States and in 1913 for Abdu'l-Bahá's visit to Europe as well. And then you mentioned feast and feast letter. <clears throat> yeah, the, the Baha'is have a, a um, gathering of worship and community group business and socializing every 19 days, and that's called feast. Since we don't have clergy, we meet locally in someone's house or in a Baha'i center or in a rented place, and anyone can plan the feast, anyone can host it, provide the refreshments, plan the, the devotional program, since there is no uh, ritual, there's no required ceremonies, there's no training for ceremonies of any sort, so there are no priests to run the worship for us, and so we worship together, and then there's a business part of the feast, and the National Spiritual Assembly, the national governing body of the Baha'is, in this case of the U.S., often provides a letter to the local feasts, just letting people know what's going on, updating them about events, uh, reminding them of priorities of the faith. And so it was a feast letter in 1976 from the National Assembly of the Baha'is of the U.S. that had this extract from Mahmoud's diary. So what happened after Brown University? <clears throat> well, actually, at Brown is when I got interested in history. So 
that's when a sort of different phase of my research or my career began. I found when I was in graduate school in geology at Brown that my math skills were vastly inadequate to pursue a doctorate in geological sciences. Geological sciences now is very heavily quantitative. I barely had managed to pass calculus. To this day, I rather doubt I could do any calculus to save my life. (laughs) So I stopped with my master's degree and started teaching geology and oceanography at a local junior college. And while I was doing that, uh, one summer, of course, when you teach part-time at a junior college, you always have your summers free. So I decided I would look at the archives of the Baha'i community in Providence, Rhode Island, and there was this you know, crying need to reorganize all the newspaper clippings, and I got very interested in the history of the Baha'i community there in Rhode Island, and I devoted the summer to putting together a slideshow, and I wrote a 100-page history of the Baha'i faith in Rhode Island. Well, of course, one of the interesting episodes in the pre-Baha'i history of the Rhode Island Baha'i community was the fact that Thornton Chase, the first American Baha'i, several decades before he became a Baha'i, had been a student at Brown University. And I was very curious about that. I went to the archives and asked them if they had any records of Thornton Chase. And we had to do a lot of digging because it turns out he's James Brown Thornton Chase. And uh, Thornton is his mother's maiden name. And he didn't shorten his name to Thornton Chase until the 1890s or so. So we found the records of James Brown Thornton Chase there in the archives and found out that he'd finished one and a half semesters and then dropped out and that he was paying his own bills. He wasn't getting the money from his father. And he was living off campus the second semester. He was no longer paying for a room. And as I did more research on Thornton Chase, uh, I got more and more interested in Baha'i history. And that really led me to make the decision to write a biography of Thornton Chase. That was your first work? The third one published, but it was the first one that I started on because I, in order to write a biography of Thornton Chase, you know, this was 1979, 1980. This is before there was anything published at all about the early history of the American Baha'i community. Some things came out in, 18, uh, in 1982, but when I was doing this research in 1980, uh, 1979, there was nothing. So I figured I'd better start by writing up a historical section to put Thornton Chase's life in context. And having no idea what I was doing, the historical section ended up being 500 pages long and became Baha'i Faith in America Volumes 1 and 2. So I finished all that, that I actually wrote the biography of Thornton Chase, which was then much easier to write because of the two volumes. So that's the complicated story about how that work began. I'll tell you a couple of stories, of anecdotes about all this. In January of 1980, when I started doing research on Thornton Chase, I had noticed that he had been born in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is only about 15 miles from Granby, Connecticut. This is the part of the irony is that I crossed paths with him in my life again and again and again. Uh, As I said, in January of 1980, I decided to do research in Springfield, Massachusetts, and went to the the library where there was a major historical collection. And, of course, it had old city directories. Very quickly, I found Thornton Chase's father's information. His name was Jotham. And I found his addresses and when he moved from one house to another 
And it turns out he built a really, really large house on the most prominent boulevard in the city at the time. Clearly, he was a wealthy man at that particular point. There's his long description of the house and all that. And I think it was designed by Olmsted, who was a famous architect even. I found a paper his father had written in the library. And then it occurred to me, if I had the date of his father's death, I could look up his obituary in the Springfield Republican, you know, the newspaper. So I left the library and I ran a mile and a half <laughs> to the city hall to look up the death record. Because in those days you could access that stuff without too much trouble. While I was running all the way over there, I said, why am I running? Why am I running? And it occurred to me, something one of my geology professors had said at Brown, if you want to get a PhD in this subject, you have to have a burning yearning. And it suddenly occurred to me, I, this is where I have the burning yearning, Baha'i history. I continued my research on Thornton Chase, of course, went back to my apartment in Rhode Island, and as the fast was approaching, I decided that I needed to say a particular prayer in the prayer book every day for guidance. Of course, the Baha'is fast from March 2nd through March 20th, every year from sunrise to sunset, we're up, up before dawn to eat our breakfast, to say prayers. Then we don't do any eating or drinking until sunset, and then we break the fast, sometimes with quite a lot of food, you know. And it's a lot of fun, and of course the fast is a very powerful spiritual time uh, of our lives as well. So there's this particular prayer in the prayer book which uh, has the line, hosts of divine assistance descending successively upon me, from the kingdom of thine omnipotent glory. And I thought, that's what I need. I need the host of divine assistance to help me out. So I started to say that prayer every day. And as I said that prayer, it occurred to me that oh, I had met this man who was studying for the Unitarian ministry, who was a student at Harvard Divinity School. He, in January, had come to my apartment to get information to write a paper. It occurred to me, you know, maybe I should go check out Harvard Divinity School and see what the situation is up there. He had volunteered to drive me up, and I had read in the newspaper a few months earlier that the head of the Unification Church of the Moonies, you know, in Rhode Island, was going to be going to Harvard Divinity School. So I thought, oh, if the Moonies can go there, why can't the highs go there? So it was on March 16th. I went up to Harvard Divinity School with this man. I discovered I could still apply, that I could take half my courses anywhere, in the Harvard system, I could take courses in other religion schools in the Boston area. Uh, I didn't have to like study Bible or anything like that. I didn't have to become a clergyman. The doors were open. I was so excited. I walked round and round the Divinity School building saying Baha'i prayers. You know, I was really thrilled that I could take this interest in religious history and really apply it and pursue it. So I applied. I was accepted to the Divinity School. I sent my paper on the history of the Baha'is in Rhode Island to the Association for Baha'i Studies, and I got a Best Research Award, so that was certainly encouraging as well. And then in the summer, I went out to Wilmette to do more research on Thornton Chase, and I was going through the archives, looking at all Thornton Chase's materials. I was still saying that prayer every day, by the way, this host of the Divine Assistance Prayer. And I was going through the materials, I was going through the tablets that Thornton Chase had typed up from various people, and I came across the tablet Abu Baha had said Thornton Chase, sent to Thornton Chase, revealed for Thornton Chase, and suddenly discovered that that prayer I had been saying every day 
had been revealed by Abdul Baha for Thornton Chase. Oh my! So I had been saying Thornton Chase's prayer. Well, he actually had two, but I had been saying the first one that he received from Abdul Baha. So here's a, you know one of the other connections uh, with Thornton Chase. Of course, like I said, he was born 15 or so 20 miles from where I was raised, and I should add that at Brown University I had an office in the Geological Sciences Building, and it looked out on St. George's Episcopal Church, uh, which is sort of cut out of a corner of the campus. And wouldn't you know it, Thornton Chase married his first wife in that church in, in 1870. I was looking at the church every day. So all these connections kept yeah. happening, you know. So I pursued the research on the book and wrote up the historical section and continued to work at, on a master's degree at Harvard. I got that in 1982. And I didn't immediately get into the doctoral program. I was actually, I guess you could say, woefully prepared for it. I had never taken a course in religion in my life, undergraduate. Here I was in a master's program (laughs) in religious studies, and I'd never studied religion. So that was incredibly difficult, to put it mildly. The first semester, I decided I was going to bite the bullet and take a lot of survey courses so I really could get a lot of basics under my belt. And within a week or two, I realized I had signed up for four courses, all of which had 1,500 pages of assigned readings, (laughs) all of which had a midterm exam, a final exam, and a final 15-page paper. And fortunately, Harvard has a month-long reading period, between the end of classes and exams. And I calculated that if I did 15 hours of studying for each final exam and 15 to 20 hours, 20 hours of studying for each final exam and 20 hours of preparation for each paper and four weeks, I had to work a minimum of 40 hours a week for four weeks to get it all done. And I probably needed to spend more like 30 hours on each, so I needed to work about 60 hours a week for four weeks. And I was literally getting up in the morning, saying the middle obligatory prayer. This is one of the prayers Baha'u'llah has revealed for us to say, and you're supposed to say it three times a day, right? Mm-hmm. It only takes a minute or so to say. So I'd get up in the morning, I would say my middle obligatory prayer. I would study till noontime, I would say the middle obligatory prayer again. I would study until supper time, I'd say the middle obligatory again. I would study until midnight or one in the morning. I'd say the middle obligatory prayer again. Well, why not? (laughs) I'd get five hours of sleep, and my systems collapsed from exhaustion before I got to final exams. I totally wore myself out. Fortunately, when I suddenly discovered I could look at my study notes, and absolutely nothing would come in, I'd read a sentence, and I'd say, what the heck did that sentence say? And I'd read it again, and nothing would happen. My brain had shut down. I thought, this is weird. Pick up the phone and called a Baha'i friend of mine who happened to be a Baha'i physician and told him about this. He said, well, let's go get some donuts. So we went and talked. And he said, you know, what you need to do is sleep. So I slept and skipped an exam the next day because I simply wasn't able to take it. And then I went and told him the situation, said, you can't skip exams or flunk them without a doctor's excuse. Well, thank God I had talked to a Baha'i who was a physician. He wrote me a note. And so, fortunately, I was able to retake those exams later in the semester and complete my first semester. And then the second semester, I only had to have one incomplete, 
because, you know, not many people can read 6,000 pages of assigned reading and do all those lectures and write all those papers and all those exams it's, it, until you know how to do it. So it was utterly exhausting. But that's, my first year was pretty good, and after that I figured out how to do it. And uh, I didn't get into the doctoral program right away, but I continued there as a special student, got in two years later. Uh, and then, of course, my first book came out, The High Faith in America, Volume 1. And all the other graduate students looked at me with a considerably more respect, you might say, after that, <laughs> since they hadn't published a book. But I'll tell you some of the things that I discovered in the process of working on the Baha'i history that I was completely unaware of, and I think most people were unaware of. Well, to take the, just take the term Baha'i faith, for example. Well, of course, the word Baha'i is an adjective in Arabic and in Persian, so you have to add something to it. It's like the word Christian. So what did the Baha'is do with that word Baha'i? First, they misspelled it. Well, I shouldn't say misspelled it. They spelled it lots of different ways. It took a while to get a standard spelling going. And so there was that first struggle that you can see unfolding in the archives as people spell these words in different ways. But what about the name of the religion itself? Of course, people started using Baha'ism, and the Baha'is themselves were very uncomfortable uh, with Baha'ism. They didn't like it and mostly they stopped using it in English. So then they used Baha'i movement and Baha'i reform. They didn't use Baha'i faith as a standard term until about 1928 or so when it really emerged as the standard term. And that's the story of, of Shoghi Effendi, Abdul Baha's successor, who was the head of the faith from 1921 to 57. He started using Baha'i faith in his letters to the Baha'is, uh, about in the early, in the mid-20s, he used it a little bit, but by the end of the 20s, he was using it as the standard term, and that shifted everything over. But I was really quite impressed to see the constitution of the Chicago Baha'i House of Spirituality, 1903. This was their governing body, and at the very top it says Baha'i Faith. So, goodness, the word Baha'i Faith goes all the way back to 1903, even though it wasn't a standard term yet. And it's very interesting when you study history to look at how words evolve, how they change their usage. And, of course, this seems like a very dry subject to many people, but it's one of those little details that's really very important to follow. And so that was one of the things that I particularly uh, was interested in. So you wrote Baha'i Faith in America, Volume 1, and then Baha'i Faith in America, Volume 2, and then which came out next, Thornton Chase or Abdul Baha'i Thornton America? Chase. Thornton, yeah, Chase. Thornton Chase. Okay. I wrote Volumes 1 and 2 as a single book, and it was finished by 80, 1983, perhaps. But I didn't know how to write very well at that point. I had just started in graduate school. I had never been a student of the humanities in college because I had been focusing on the sciences. And so I wasn't a very good or very clear writer. So when I submitted the manuscript to the Baha'i Publishing Trust, the first thing they said is, well, you can't publish this whole thing. It's too long. We have to split it in half. So I said, okay, and I divided it with uh, the year 1900, which is um, the end of a whole series of major developments in the American Baha'i community and a kind of transition that happens in 1900. So that divided the book into two volumes. And then I submitted volume one to the editor, Dr. Betty Fisher, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, and she's in reti retired now, of course. 
And she began to edit the manuscript and send it back to me. And there were times when there was so much red ink on a particular page, they had to photocopy the page. So I would receive, I send them a, like a 200-page manuscript, and I get back 300 pages <laughs> totally covered with red ink. If you can imagine how, maybe humiliating is too strong of a word, but if you can imagine how devastating is the word, that's the right word, devastating, how devastating it is to get a manuscript back where they couldn't even fit all the corrections on the page. Now, of course, then to make things even more interesting, this was now 1983 or 84. So this is the beginning of the computer age, and I had submitted them the manuscript in WordStar uh, as a printout with the old-fashioned dot matrix printers that people may remember. And, of course, the Baha'i Publishing Trust at that point was not computerized. So that meant I had to insert all the changes myself and send them back a clean copy. And this is how the entire editing of Volume 1 went once we had it cleaned up. And I should add that the second draft came back where they didn't have any pages, at least, that had to be photocopied. But most of the pages still were covered with red ink. <laughs> so I got my second round of devastation. Yeah. I cleaned all that up, too. I'll tell you, I learned how to write, though. Yeah. That's the thing. I learned how to write. If I had submitted, say, George Ronald, I would have thought I was a good writer, and it would have muddled through and uh, would not have been anywhere nearly as clear as it ended up being. Really, is that process that made me a much, much better writer when I submit manuscripts to academic presses now, they come back with practically no red marks on them at all, with little comments like, you're a good writer. I have to thank Dr. Fisher for that. So that was volume one that came out in 85. Then volume two sort of sat for a long time because the publishing trust had a big backlog of manuscripts. And finally, they had to release me from their contract because they simply couldn't keep up with all their manuscripts. So volume two went to George Ronald, which is a Baha'i publisher in England, private publisher in England, and they did volume two. That came out in, uh, I should say, 1996 or 95, something like that, about a, about a decade later. Then I'd written the biography of Thornton Chase in 1985, 86, I think it was. It's interesting. I sort of felt like I was kind of ready to get started. And I thought, no, I don't want to get started yet. I don't want to get started yet. Oh, I'm going to get started. And I just started writing. And that was maybe in May, and I wrote the whole thing by August. Wow. It was one of those situations where, okay, today I'm dealing with Chapter 3, and all I would do is think about Chapter 3. You know, Fortunately, at that point, my schoolwork was much reduced as a focus. I didn't have a family, and I could just sort of obsess about the book about 12 hours a day, <laughs> <laughs> which is the only way to write something, really for me anyway. So that got the biography of Thornton Chase written in three or four months. And it was then published by the Baha'i Publishing Trust in 2003, I think it was. So it sat 20 years before it actually came out, which was a, a source of anguish for me. Why? Who wants to write a book and not have it appear for 20 years? Yeah. But I was sharing the manuscript with people who needed the information. So it was, in that sense, still helping the field of Baha'i studies move forward a bit. Right. And I wanted it to come out with the Publishing Trust because Thornton Chase was one of the people who founded the Baha'i Publishing Trust. So they published that. Yeah. And then, of course, there was a long hiatus in terms of research from the 80s until really about 2011 because I was hired 
to work for the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States, the national governing body, in 1989 as my doctorate was winding down. And once I started working in Wilmette, Illinois for the National Assembly, I really didn't feel I could devote much time and energy to my own personal research because I was giving my time to the National Spiritual Assembly. And furthermore, if I wanted to devote any time to my own personal research, I was kind of burned out. So I didn't do much research really until 2010 when my responsibilities at the National Center had got cut back down. So my time got cut down to 20 hours, and now I'm at 29. And that worked very well because it gives me the time to do everything I need to do. So at that point, I was able to go back to doing research on Baha history, and so I decided to do the book on Abdul Baha's visit to America, which was, of course, 1912 when he was here, and the book came out in 2012. So that was the logical thing to do, was to, to get it finished and out for the centenary of his visit. And then at the same time, I was invited to write this book, The Baha'i Faith, A Guide for the Perplexed, by Bloomsbury, which is an academic publisher. They have a Guide for the Perplexed series, Sufism, a Guide for the Perplexed, Zoroastrianism, a Guide for the Perplexed, Modern Philosophy, a Guide for the Perplexed. And uh, I agreed to contribute a Baha'i book to that series. And in many ways, that required very little or much less research because, after all, I had at that point been a Baha'i for 30 or so years, and I knew the, the outline of the material fairly well. It was just a matter of filling out some of the details. So that's an interesting series, A Guide for the Perplexed. What's the significance of that? It's a uh, quote from, I believe, Maimonides, who was a very famous Jewish philosopher in the Middle Ages. And Maimonides wrote a book called A Guide for the Perplexed, I think about either Kabbalah or Jewish theology or, or Judaism or something, I'm, I'm not quite sure. So they were taking his title and uh, using it as the beginning of a series. It's sort of like a, a you know something for dummies series, but it's meant to be more at an academic general college level. At least that's what I wrote it for. So I wrote, a, wrote an introduction of the faith, mostly with a college audience in mind. I think it takes an interesting approach because the first chapter just talks about the nature of Baha'i authoritative texts, the fact that we have texts that we regard to be the Word of God or authoritative interpretation of the Word of God. A lot of people don't realize that about the Baha'i faith. They just think we have a bunch of nice ideas that we kind of threw together. They don't realize that we make this claim to a divine revelation. So the first chapter lays the groundwork to explain that and talks about the quantity of texts that we have. So it really puts, it, puts the faith in a different context, I guess you could say. Then the second chapter talks about the concept of unity. And that is, after all, the central teaching of the Baha'i faith, the watchword, as Shoghi Effendi, the guardian, called it. There's a lot you can say about the nature of this concept of unity. So I have a chapter about that. Then I have a series of chapters. One is on God, revelation, manifestation. Uh, another one is on the nature of the human being and the spiritual quest of the individual, the spiritual quest of human beings. And then also on practical things like marriage and family life. So it's basically the, a chapter focusing on the individual with the success of you know, marriage and family being larger spheres. And then the 
this next chapter focuses on the world, social reform, creation of a new civilization. So it starts with God, goes to the individual, and then goes through larger and larger social spheres until you get to the whole planet. And then I have a series of, I think it's seven chapters, which cover the development of the Baha'i community historically. So you talk about the time of the Bab, Baha'u'llah's forerunner, who lived from 1819 to 1850 and declared his mission in 1844. So you have that brief window from 1844 to 1850 when the Bab is establishing his religion and revealing his text, also four million words or so. So you have a huge volume of revelation from him as well. So there's a chapter on that, a chapter on the ministry of Baha'u'llah, a chapter on the ministry of Abdul Baha, a chapter on the ministry of Shoghi Effendi, two chapters on the period since 1963 when the guardianship that Shoghi Effendi had held, of course, was the guard, he was the guardian. It was replaced by the governance by the Universal House of Justice, the nine-member governing body that Baha'is indirectly elect every five years through their delegates. One of the chapters covers the House of Justice's uh, ministry from 63, 1963 to 1996. The other chapter covers, covers 96 to the present. And then there's a wrap-up chapter. So that's how that book got structured. And uh, I think it's an interesting approach to talk about unity first and then do sort of God, individual, marriage, family, wor the world, you know, sort of a progressive development of the horizontal development of things. As you think of, the individual has two purposes, according to the Baha'i writings. One is to know and worship God, and that's what I call a vertical purpose, because it's a vertical relationship with God. And another passage from the Baha'i writings talks about a second purpose, which is to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. So that's a sort of horizontal purpose, you know, from us to the other people who are our peers around us. So we have our vertical and our horizontal relationships that we have to develop in this world while we're alive here. So the first chapter, the, the theology chapter starts to talk about the, the vertical relationship, and then the other chapters talk about the horizontal relationship of us to our fellow human beings. So what do you think your next project's going to be, Rob? Well, I have promised to write Baha'i Faith in America, Volume 3, which will cover 1912 to 1921. And if you read Volume 1, you'll see back there in the 80s, I said I was going to write Volume 3. And I've begun to do some research on it. The Abdul Baha in America book really covers the first quarter in terms of content of Volume 3, because Abdul Baha's visit is one of the most important, is the most important part of that particular volume. So I'm hoping to work on that. And I'm hoping to get that out, I would say, in the next two or three, four years, assuming I can get the time. The big difficulty is that that involves thousands of hours of research in the archives, and I live two and a half miles, two and a half hours from the archives and can't get there easily. So we'll see how, I, how well I can get that done. Then I would like to write a history of the Baha'i faith in America from the beginning to the present. Whenever the present is, maybe 2021 or something like that, we'll see when I can actually get to it. <laughs> that would be about a century and a quarter. That wouldn't be bad. So I guess that's my next project. And after that, I'll, I don't know, retire to a remote island and <laughs> write science fiction stories or something and <laughs> have fun. I don't know. That would be a change in, 
genre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Rob, are you involved with the Wilmette Institute? Yeah, I'm a director of the Wilmette Institute. Can you explain so what the Wilmette Institute is, its purpose, and its goals? Sure. Well, the Wilmette Institute was established uh, by the National Spiritual Assembly in 1996. Uh, a committee of staffers at the National Center, including myself, proposed it to the Assembly. And its purpose is to provide, uh, I guess you could say, fairly high-level, deepening high-level education on the Baha'i faith, potentially college or university level on the Baha'i faith, to anybody. And of course, at first we were doing classes face-to-face in Wilmette every year because uh, there was really no internet practically, and we didn't think how we were going to use it in 1996. But starting in 1998, we began to use the web and teach classes online. And our face-to-face classes really shrank away and disappeared so our face-to-face classes stopped in 2004, I think it was. Since 1998, when we began to do online courses, we've steadily expanded. We now have about 30 to 33 courses per year. They're usually seven weeks long. They're held only on the Internet, so there's no face-to-face component at all. Some of them use web-based video, but that's always optional because people are in too many time zones and have too many commitments. So we really can't get everybody together live. It's just about impossible. So the courses cover all kinds of Baha'i subjects, all the different major works of Baha'u'llah and Abu Baha and Shoghi Effendi. Uh, we have courses on each one of those, or perhaps two or three of them are combined together for a single course. So we have those. We've got courses on Baha'i history, courses on all the world's religions, partially from a Baha'i perspective and partially from an academic perspective. And we have courses on Old Testament, New Testament, and Koran as well, and courses on various aspects of the Baha'i faith. We've got a course on the advancement of women, for example, that will start in September. We have a course on international development from a Baha'i point of view that just started of course, in economics and the Baha'i faith, it's now wrapping up. It started back in, I think, with April. Climate change uh, is a course that we just had so many people sign up for it, we had to immediately offer it again. <laughs> That's a good so, thing. Uh, from a Baha'i perspective, a course on sustainable development and the prosperity of humankind, which is a course that's part of the Baha'i contribution to the decade the United Nations Decade for Sustainable Development, and a lot of Baha'is have been taking that course as well. So the courses serve several purposes. One is just just general education about the Baha'i faith. Another one is helping Baha'is prepare for what you could call public discourse. This is something that the Universal House of Justice has been stressing more and more, that Baha'is need to be able to explain their ideas to the public, be able to participate in dialogues on things, go to conferences and explain Baha'i teachings in the context of those conferences. And so our course is pretty much, uh, a lot of them focus on uh, helping Baha'is to be able to make contributions to public discourse. Well, Rob, I want to thank you so much for sharing your works and your life with us. Thank you so much. Sure. Delighted, really. Uh, Good to talk to you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Stockman, a Baha'i author and director of the Baha'i Online Learning Center, called the Wilmette Institute. 
You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
how love is me Turn away from thyself And if thou seekest my pleasure God not thine own Thou mayest die in me And I may turn I wanna die in you and turn to see You living in me eternally uh, How many eyes have seen what I've been through How many hearts will confide in you I seek your pleasure and I want it to continue So I tell myself, look alive, I will die in you Just chill and relax my mind But my heart can't see through the pain You know I can't see through the rain And the stain on the frame So I look inside and I hear a voice say If you love me, turn away So I turn away from myself I'll stay forever like this Through the night, through the day I learn that better things come my way If I die in him and begin to pray So it's clear with no tears and no fear We don't need to wait around for heaven to appear Cause it's right inside so come on everybody look alive Yeah. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.